six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Prepare yourself for a world of science. This is... What is going on, everybody? Conley here with uh, the Science Night in the morning. Dr. <laughs> Sean Graham. You know, it is... Uh, it, it's a crazy week. It is bound to happen eventually. It is bound to happen. Here we are. We made it all this way. We're down to one. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Dr. Anurban Bhattacharji, he is in uh, India right now, I believe, or traveling all over the world, really. Uh, and oh, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, he, he's out, I think. And uh, Dr. Thomas Schiller is out on the actually teaching right now so here we yeah. are i thought he was out on the field but uh hey he's going he's been out on the field almost every weekend for the past few weeks so a lot of research a lot of people the town is a buzz how's it going on uh, over there down under it's going real well the weather here is beautiful it's starting to feel a little bit like autumn here if you can believe that wow and that's the season we're coming into is autumn um summer's almost over but right today, it's going to be in the 80s again. Um, we had some rain the last couple of days, and it got down into like the 60s. And so, yeah, uh, you guys are going into spring, and then the southern hemisphere is the other way around. So um, fall is kind of starting to show up here where we are. Well, that's cool. I, I'm a fall fan, so I need to just, uh, you know, make a million yeah. dollars and travel to all the places in the world that only experience fall. The endless good. fall. Yeah, I almost feel like it's going to be weird that it's, I'm going to be like looking forward to college football or something with the weather, <laughs> and it's, it's going to be a long way off. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a while. Well, we have a good show for you. We have a very informative show. You know, we've we've made it a year. Coronavirus happened twenty twenty twenty. We're always going. I was telling people today, we're going to look in our photo albums at the time when we wore masks. And we're going to say to our kids and grandkids, hey, looky there, that's 2020. That's back in 2020. Coronavirus, I remember that. Let me tell you a long, drawn-out story about it, of course. But Yeah, yeah. But, um, and, appar and, and apparently, you know, um, everybody is going to forget all the lessons <laughs> that, we, that we learned. So that in the next pandemic, everybody will be just as stupid as they were this time around and forget everything that we learned not that we did a really great job of managing it here in the u.s but you know the the 1918 flu spanish uh, flu yeah almost all the lessons we could have gotten from that nobody followed nobody listened uh, so do you think history is going to repeat itself this time oh yeah it's it's you know people have been saying that for 20 years leading up to the covid19 pandemic but watch out some sort of a something will happen eventually and we need to be ready for it and um nobody listened and then when it did happen they dusted off all the playbooks that we had learned from 1918 and nobody followed them and we just had it's a good thing this thing wasn't as deadly as it could have been yeah because we did nothing to stop it here in this country i mean we made almost all the mistakes you could possibly make um, and we're we're sitting here with a price tag of five hundred thousand people dead. Uh, even um, more now. I mean, it goes up yeah. every single day. And I mean, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna keep going up. Um, yeah. But it looks like you know if, if, if the vaccine rollout works out okay. I mean, I don't want to give people false hope, but I feel like and I think most people have the impression that this thing is almost over, and it could very well be. But we'll see what kind of more stupid mistakes the U.S. can make. Well, this is a well. Well, this is a good show because I have a lot of questions. I have questions about our past. I have questions mm -hmm. about how herd immunity works, and yeah. I have uh, questions about how vaccines work. Hopefully, we can touch on all those. But there's an interesting story you mentioned. Like right now, we're we're experiencing this. You know, at the hopefully death throes right of the pandemic, the very right. last part, and uh, hopefully. And, um, well, I remember back uh, when SARS was a big deal, 
when the SARS mm-hmm. virus was, I mean, I remember watching it. Everybody had masks all over the world except for us. We didn't care. We, we didn't, it didn't affect us. I wasn't, yeah, I, I did not lose one night of sleep during that yeah. whole debacle. But I think there, we talked about SARS before or in the early days of the pandemic when we had the uh, psychological fortitude to talk about it. We did a couple of shows. Yeah. And I mentioned that SARS was kind of a, a dress rehearsal for COVID-19. It's another one of these coronaviruses. And it was it was way more virulent and more deadly. And I feel like we really dodged a bullet. And they did a great job of containing it before it could get out into the open. Mm-hmm. Even though it's it's way more deadly than COVID nineteen uh, in a way that was kind of its Achilles heel. It killed, it, you know, made you sick so fast that um, you know nobody could, uh, you know, it couldn't hide like COVID nineteen can. Right. There weren't very many asymptomatic cases where it could spread without you knowing it, and mm. so we were able to control it pretty easily. But I, I remember the media frenzy. Everybody got turned off by the media frenzy. And everybody was like not taking it seriously because they were like, oh, it's just C- you know, CNN trying to sell commercials. And that was the first thing people said when the beginning of COVID-19 happened. I remember all a bunch of my friends on Facebook posting these ridiculous memes that were like, oh, it's an election year. So here's the <laughs> media doing this again. And I was like, that is not how the media works. I mean, the media is a lot of bad things, but they were just trying to tell you that something, you know, they're telling you a hurricane was coming and people were like, Oh, and they're still nobody, you know, I mean, playing, playing devil's advocate here. You can't deny that they like NBC, MSNBC sold a ton of Viagra and uh, Fox news sold a ton of Ford trucks. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They, they <laughs> sold. And yet, so that's, that's my thing. Like when we talk about the media, um, you know, obviously there's some propaganda out there. But the main motivation of even even the media that's like super propagandized, their main motivation is selling cars. Right. And so, of course, they're going to have this stuff all over the place and it's sensationalized. But if anything, they didn't do they didn't scare you enough. Viagra is a pill, by the way. It's not a. Yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't. I, you know, you can get it for free down in Mexico. It's up. Oh, OK. Don't, don't buy it. Don't buy it. It's still here. Yeah. So. So. Anyway, we can get all that stuff, but, you know, here, maybe this will be a good segue. We're still talking about the media. I wanted, I wanted on this show today to remind folks about a, uh, a disease scare that happened in the U.S. before even SARS. And so this might be before your time a little bit, Tomlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's definitely not, it's one of the, it, it is the first big disease outbreak scare that I can remember. That happened in this country, and it was a big media sensation. And I have to take the listeners all the way back to the heady days of 1993. 1993, okay. Nirvana. How old, was how old big. were you? 93. I was in elementary school. You were I mean, yeah, so what, 80, I, was, I was like 10, 11 years old, almost <laughs> like 10 years old, something like that. Yeah, I was 16. Okay. So I was super, I was, on, you know, I was, I'm kind of the way I, I am now. I was aware of things. I watched the news. I kept track of stuff. Like the big, the big global news story that had just kind of finished up uh, yeah. that I was super aware of was the first Gulf War. Gulf War. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> Which most people are like, wait, wait, that's 2003. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> when Iraq invaded Kuwait and we went and kicked their butt and kicked them out of there and didn't make the mistake of going all the way in. That was 1991. Okay. And so this is, that was such a big deal and I was all over it. And so I'm a super aware 16 year old and 1993, <clears throat> I'm traveling through the four corners with my family and my, on our first family vacation to the desert. It's the nice. first time I ever got to see the desert. So yeah, let's let's frame this. What happened in 1993? You were talking about Nirvana. Nirvana was already big. Grunge was big. Yep. Uh, Nickelodeon. Smashing Pumpkins. The Smashing Pumpkins just released Siamese Dream. Yeah. Oh man, I love that album. That's that's a great album. Um, so I'm listening to the Siamese Dream on the headphones. Cassette tape, right? You got the Walkman. <laughs> so, 
I actually, I actually had a CD. Oh, dude, you're a rich right. kid. Yes, yes, <laughs> CD. No, dude, that was, that was. I had a cassette player for the longest time, and I think somebody gave me a CD player because they were so common at that point. Yeah, the Sony then, Walkmans were were awesome. Yeah, and uh, the Fugitive came out that summer. We saw the Fugitive in Winslow, Arizona. Wow. Uh, it, so Harrison Ford, and meanwhile, yep. in the Four Corners, something sinister was occurring. And in May of 1993, a 20-year-old cross-country star, a Navajo cross-country star, Meryl Baje, was on his way from near Shiprock, New Mexico, to his wife's funeral. down in Gallup, New Mexico, when he started having trouble breathing. By the time he got to the funeral home, he had to go across the street to the hospital where he died two hours later of pulmonary edema. Mm. His lungs flew up, filled up with his own fluids. He died of pulmonary edema, a cross-country star, at the age of 20. His wife had died five days earlier of the same thing. Mm. And their infant son, Maurice, was sick too. Mm. And that was, that was one of the first people who died of this mysterious illness that nobody knew what it was causing. Mm. That's how this starts. In the summer of 1993, when we were on a family vacation... It was blowing up all throughout the four corners in the U.S. <clears throat> so the medical examiner, the you know the physician in charge of Merrill Bahey's um, uh, care when he lost this patient, freaks out because he finds out that he his wife had died five days earlier of this thing. This could be infectious. So he calls New Mexico health authorities. They call the CDC, and the CDC sends like fifteen epidemiologists to the four corners. Um, when they usually might just send one or two. They're freaking out. This is Apparently, this could be a super infectious agent. They don't know how it's spread. They don't know what it is. Uh, they test Merrill for bubonic plague, wow. which has similar symptoms. And the plague does turn up in the U.S. Um, occasionally now, even now, it's found in rodent populations like uh, prairie dogs and ground squirrels. Mm-hmm. So it could have been plague, and it wasn't. So they test everything that could possibly be, and they, they, they can't figure out what this thing is. Um, and it's all over the news. They're calling it the mystery illness. It's all over the newspapers. Uh, CNN needs a story that they can carry through the 24-hour news cycle because the Gulf War is over. So they're, they're sending this story all over the U.S., they're calling it the mystery illness. They're calling it the four corners illness. They're calling it, unfortunately, the Navajo flu because it's oh. killing a lot of folks in the Navajo reservation. In the four wow. corners. Wow. And that was actually, I, I, I'm going to pin this on who that belongs to. USA Today ran that as their headline. Quote, Navajo flu, unquote. That's pretty, pretty irresponsible. Wow. <clears throat> well, you know, now that I think about it, I do remember... You know, breaking, sounding familiar? Well, I, I remember breaking news in the middle of Double Dare, and I was so mad. <laughs> and I think it was about the Navajo flu. <laughs> I love Double Dare. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Some of this should be sounding, I'm sure a lot yeah. of our listeners are old enough to remember this. And I'm telling you this story um, as it kind of unfolded so that it can be, because I, I can't believe, number one, there should be a movie about this. And number two, there should at least be a really great book about this, and there is really neither. This is an incredible story, and I'm telling, I'm, I'm trying to tell our listeners this story kind of as it unfolded because that makes it way more like the way it unfolded is the most incredible part of, of this story. If I just said, oh, there's this illness that is caused this way, this show would suck. So I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to make this interesting for our listeners by telling it uh, as it went down. Cool. Well, we got about six more minutes in the until our first break. Uh, we we got plenty okay. of time. Let let Great. take take us through a journey. So here we go. So Meribahi dies, and within about a week, uh, another ten people are dead. 
and they start going back through the records and they start finding more people throughout the area who have died of pulmonary edema in the last couple of months. And so the numbers are rising and the number of patients in the hospitals are rising. And by the time the CDC gets there and they start looking at the number of people who are sick versus the number of people who are dead, <laughs> the case fatality rate for this thing, 71%. Good yeah. Wow. And wow. that's another reason why they're freaking out because they don't know how this thing is spread. They don't know what is causing it. And it's super, according to the, at least the initial reports, one of the deadliest known diseases there is. 71% is worse than Ebola. Um, 71% is, is worse than just about anything. Um, and so they send their people in there. And this is where it gets really kind of cool because this is where technology and, and science really kind of um, really came to save the day right off the bat. So they start getting materials from the, the victims and start trying to figure out what this thing is. And they immediately kind of start to suspect that this thing might be a rodent-borne disease. Mm. Okay. Is that is that um, typically like a go-to whenever you're trying to figure out where these diseases come from or viruses come from? Uh, like, do you just automatically... It seems like every single time something new comes out, they point to the to the rats, to the mouth. Yeah, it's, it's not... It's a pretty safe bet. You know, it's not necessarily, you know... Uh, like it, it jumps species. It, it's common. Yeah, it, yeah it, uh, rodents would be a really good target. You know, if... if, if you know, if Meryl Bahi had a pet monkey, they might go, ooh, we better test that monkey. But mice, you know, the reason mice, rodents do carry a ton of diseases that humans are susceptible to. Part of it is because their population densities are so high, they're yeah. locally abundant. But, they're, you know, when you hear about people talking about, oh, they study chimpanzees because we share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. But they're super closely related to chimpanzees. We share 90% of our DNA with rodents. Yeah. Primates and rodents are pretty closely related. That's why, you know, you don't want to necessarily study chimpanzees as a system that's similar to humans because they're vicious and awful and they'll trick you into, you know, getting close to their cage so they can bite your finger off. They're, they're tough customers. But mice are super easy to do research on. And you can get a ton of information because they're pretty similar to us too, 90%. So they, they start to suspect a rodent-borne pathogen, and they start doing various tests on the material, and um, they're able, they, they start to suspect that this thing might be one of the hantaviruses. And a hantavirus is something most people in the U.S. had never heard of until 1993. Mm -hmm. And I guess that kind of gives away the, the, uh, the cat out of the bag here, because that, that's, that ends up being what this thing was. Hmm. But they, a hantavirus uh, causes, there's known hantaviruses in Asia that cause disease. And there had never been a hantavirus in the Western Hemisphere known to cause disease. So they, they kind of start narrowing it down using, you know, some epidemiology techniques, um, uh, talking to people. They're like, okay, this probably isn't being passed from person to person. Um, so then it could be rodent born. So they kind of, through a combination of like, Boots on the ground, sleuthing, gumshoe epidemiology, they start to do this and narrow it down to probably a rodent-borne disease. And then once they, they kind of figure out, okay, maybe it's a hantavirus, mm -hmm. they need to be able to, to um, actually pull the virus out of the tissues that they've dissected from the patients and, and actually test it to see if it's a hantavirus. And in 1993, that was not very easy to do. Uh, wow. Nowadays, super routine. Remember what happened with COVID-19. Yeah. COVID-19, they had their initial burst of patients in Wuhan, China. And within like three days, they had the virus and they had its entire genome sequenced. Yeah. Now, the first, first real case of something like that happening so fast and so well was this case in 1993. Wow. When a new, a new technique known as polymerase chain reaction, had been just invented. This is, a, this is a technique where you can essentially take DNA or RNA, uh, the genetic material of a virus, 
and amplify it um, uh, and and then make the sample easier to work with when you have that amplified strand and you can you can more easily sequence it and analyze it if it's amplified Interesting. in order to do that you need you need to kind of have an idea of what virus you are dealing with you can't just amplify all the viral DNA you have to use this thing called the primer that kind of gets the thing started and in order to design a primer that you're going to pull that virus out with you have to kind of know which general virus it is that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And so that's where it became really important to kind of guess that it was a hantavirus. Mm. And so they knew, they kind of had a guess it was a hantavirus, and then you could design a primer that would pull only hantavirus material out of the patient, mm. amplify it, analyze it, then compare. Mm. And all of that was brand spanking new in 1993. So they were really just kind of... Uh just really testing it out firsthand in the real world without any yeah. kind of, uh, well, that that's really interesting. I want to know more about this. we got to take a quick commercial break. Sure. sure. But uh, let's uh, deep dive after yeah. this. All right, everybody. We are back talking to Sean Graham today. The other Science Knights are out on the field working really hard. Uh, but uh, luckily, we have Sean Graham from Down Under talking about the hantavirus. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, hantavirus. Uh, the hantaviruses are named for a um, a river in in Korea called the Hantan River, mm. and that's where that's where these were initially um, kind of described. This was back in the days when we would uh, when we named viruses after geographic localities. Yeah, uh, we we actually going away from that now. This this story gets into that in a big way of the the change. Uh, uh, when epidemiologists, virologists stopped naming viruses after places was really the first example of that is this story. So we, we started with the Navajo virus, right? Navajo flu. Well, they, or... they, yeah, they never called it that. That was the media that called it that. Oh, the media um, called it that. Okay. But there, and maybe we'll just jump ahead here. We're actually at the point here where we can we can give this thing a name. Okay. Because within within like three weeks or four weeks of Meryl Bahi uh, dying, and then initially realizing this was something bizarre, the CDC had uh, kind of guessed that this was a hantavirus, pulled it out by a polymerase chain reaction or PCR. And just, by the way, PCR is now used by like freshman biology students in labs in certain universities. That's so common now. And it's like one of the ways that, you know, the, the testing of COVID-19 is based on a... You know, PCR type test. You but guys 90, probably all heard that. But 1993, it was like cutting edge. Brand spanking new. Yeah. And so they, they pull it out, they identify it, they realize that it's not any of the known hantaviruses, so they got a new virus. And unlike the hantaviruses in Asia, which usually cause kidney disease, this one causes lung disease, intense, very acute, brutal pulmonary edema. So they've not only got a brand new virus, they got a brand new disease. And the virus now needs a name, and you know the media had already named it, you know, Navajo flu, uh, very uh, irresponsibly. But you know, now the CDC has to name it, and they got to figure out a way to do it. And the, the and the media is pulled into this, and local politicians have been pulled into this, and they're sitting around uh, at like these big um, meetings with local boosters and whatnot, and talking about this and things name, and they're kicking around the name of Four Corners virus. And the mm. local boosters are like, you better not, yeah, because our tourism entire economy and, yeah. is based on tourism, and it's already bad enough. And if you name this thing after our our beautiful country here, uh, you're going to doom us. So they said, good call. What about the Canyon Muerte virus? <laughs> so one of the locations was the Canyon Muerte, which means you know. So they're going to name this thing the Death Canyon virus, and the boosters are like, hell no, that's too scary. Uh, <laughs> So they came up, they're, they're scouring these maps of the area, and they find this obscure arroyo called Sin Nombre Wash. And Sin Nombre in, in Espanol, most of our listeners will know, means without a name. Mm. So that's the name of this virus to this day, is Sin Nombre virus, which means... The virus, virus without, without a name. A name. Wow. Yeah. That was the that was the first case where, uh, you know, virologists and epidemiologists really had to kind of think about um, you know, 
what you should name these things or right. why you shouldn't necessarily name it after a place because it, it will forever be associated with that place and give the place a bad reputation. Or just be creative why, in general. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> it's a little unfortunate because I kinda I kinda like you know, some of the some of the named viruses are named after places, you know, St. Louis encephalitis virus mm-hmm. is named after St. Louis, you know, and it'll always have that name and nobody thinks of that when they go to good old St. Louis. But in another way, it kind of does make sense, and especially in this case, because it was just the media sensation. So they've named this thing, they've identified it, and now they start going to look to try to figure out how it's transmitted. And the first place they look, of course, is rodents. And so the the rodent catcher, what they, what they would call the rat catcher for the CDC, was currently on assignment uh, looking into disease uh Diseases in big rodents and big Norway rats in the wilds of Baltimore, mm. Maryland. Where okay. they, so they pull him. They pull him off the assignment where he's trapping big rats in the in the inner city, and send him to the four corners. And he starts trapping mice. And they do a simple study. They set up a bunch of traps and catch a bunch of mice at the homes of the people who had died, and then they picked a bunch of random localities throughout the four corners where they had people uh, where nobody had been sick. And sure enough, they find in a native mouse, the deer mouse has got this virus mm. and it's got it in huge numbers. And, oh, and, of course. And, and in most individuals, high prevalence and high, uh, higher volumes of this virus, especially around the places where the people had gotten sick and died and not in these other locations. So, boom, they've got the reservoir host. That's what you call, you know, the animal that is going to be mainly responsible for transmitting uh, animal-borne disease to uh, the reservoir host. So, So they've identified the reservoir host within like a month or two of this outbreak. So (laughs) is the next step to contain it, kill the species, or heal the species? Yeah, so none of those things none. are really okay. the next step. Because none of those things are really even possible when you're talking about deer mice. Uh, containing oh, deer, so too, too much. What you, too try, what you can do, yeah, yeah. You, if you wanted to try to eradicate deer mice, good luck. If you want to try to um, give them little vaccines, good luck. That's going to be seven <laughs> years down the road. But the first thing you said, containment kind of does make sense. And, inst- and not necessarily containing the number of mice, but what you want to try to do is break the transmission. Right. If, and that's why it's important to locate the reservoir host, because if you know what the host is, then you might be able to think of a way to keep that host from transmitting the virus to humans. So you got to figure out how it's transmitting the, the, um, the virus. And from that, they, they basically just looked and they were like, OK, well, how do, how do all these other hantaviruses get transmitted? And they were like, well, it's, it's like in the urine and the feces of these deer mice, it dries up. It becomes aerosolized, mm. and then you get it that way. So they're like, okay, well, you, within a couple of months, they're like, look, they've got these guidelines, and they're putting it all over the place. They're like, if you have mice in your house, don't sweep out the house. Just basically get out of the house. Um, wow. you got to keep keep mouse from, mice from getting in your house. you got to trap them, you, and just try not to inhale those particles. And so that's that's how you... Uh, manage this disease as you break the transmission mm-hmm. but there's still there's tons of questions right it's mm-hmm. like where did this thing come from why now what, was it always in the mice um is this some sort they literally thought about this is this some sort of biological weapon that was mm-hmm. just released in the mice mm-hmm. um because it came from nowhere and it's super uh virulent kills and you know by the time this is all going on it's a couple of months later, and the the um, case fatality rate is still hovering at fifty one percent. If you get this thing, you got a 50-50 chance of dying. That's crazy. Wow. And remember, yeah. you know the case fatality rate for COVID nineteen is um, you know hovering around one percent still, one percent. Mm-hmm. And this was fifty, so way scarier. And so they got all these questions: Where did this thing come from? How long has it been around? Is it always been in the mice? And this is where a really cool part of this story happens. This is where basic 
ecologists, basic biologists like people like me who just go taking students out into the field and trapping mice from mammalogy class save the day. <laughs> because there were, um, you know, the, the rat catcher for the CDC just got there. He was studying stuff in Baltimore. He didn't have any data on deer mice. They didn't, you know, he started catching deer mice and he found out, yeah, right away, deer mice had this thing. But to answer all those questions I just asked, they had ecologists. They called up anyone they could and they tried to find out if anybody had data on mice before the outbreak. And sure enough, some mammologists at the University of New Mexico had been trapping deer mice near the Four Corners uh, since 1989. That's a gold wow, mine. Wow, that's a lot, yeah. That's a gold mine. They've got all these data on the deer mouse populations from a couple of years ago. And since they were good mammologists, when you trap mice and if you, you know, if you collect them and keep them and put, put some of their skins in the museum, there are, that's how we, you know, that's how mammologists do their job. They, they go out trapping stuff, they do studies, they catch mice and they skin them, stuff them and put them in the, in the collections. We've got at Ross, we've got, you know, mice that were collected in the 1960s by mammologists that were stuffed and kept in our collection. So all the distribution maps and natural history information on all the mammals in the U.S., that's how we got that information. It's from mammologists making these collections. And these guys at University of New Mexico have been doing that for decades. And standard practices, good practices for mammologists, is to not only make a skin but collect some tissue mm. and put it in the freezer. And so the CDC wow. has tissue of deer mice going back to the 70s. And sure wow. enough, they go back through them and they pull the virus out of those mouse <laughs> tissues that have been stored. And this thing had been around since at least 1979. Wow. The huh. earliest, the earliest um, you know, mouse in the collection that they had that had a positive synombre virus was collected in 1979. And that tissue sample had been in the freezer ever since. So are you saying that this virus somehow kind of mutated into humans? Hmm. It had it jumped to humans for some reason in 1993, and that's part of the mystery. We're uh, still not there. Okay. I haven't got to that part yet. Oh, yeah. okay, all right. So that that that's a great question, though. But no, that just means that this thing had been there in the mouse all along. It, hmm. It's a, it's a it just like it's found in the mice in Asia. The Cinnombre virus had always been here, but for some reason, and this is the last part of the puzzle. And this is the part where just ordinary ecologists and mammologists at the University of Mexico really uh, came to the rescue and helped to explain this thing. Now, there's this really cool side story here. Part of, uh, part of all that was necessary to do this, they had to go to the Navajo Nation to do all of these studies, right? to, to go trapping near the victims' homes. They had to have access to the Navajo Nation. And in order to do that, um, they had to hold some meetings with the, the kind of tribal elders. And they also had, fortunately, they had Navajo physicians who, who were well-respected within the community. The president of the Navajo Nation was fully supportive and allowed the CDC to go in. They're sitting there with some of the tribal elders, and they're talking about how we've seen this thing before. Mm. We saw this in 1918. We saw this in 1933. And when this happened, it was always after super wet years, after super snowy winters, where there's a ton of snow accumulation. And it, this would cause a huge crop of pinion nuts, and the mice would explode. Mm. These huge populations of pinions would support huge populations of mice, and that's when we would see this sickness. And the Navajo physician, there's a Navajo physician overhearing them talk about this. He's like, I can't believe this. They're talking about the same thing we're talking about. Because they were trying to figure out what was going on with the mouse population. The University of New Mexico mammologists had data going back to 1989 and showed that deer mice had a 20, uh, the deer mouse population was 20 times higher in 1993 than it was in the previous years. Mm. And what had happened in 1992? El Nino had happened in 1992 and had created super wet, rainy conditions in the desert. Wow. And that's probably what happened in 1917 and 1932. 
Um, so with, with that information, going back to um, the population trends of deer mice, these University of New Mexico mammalogists knew that that's kind of how this works in the desert, that everything depends on the amount of rain the previous year. If you do a long-term study in the Chihuahuan Desert, where we are, West Texas, this has actually been done up near um, Las Cruces. If you do a long-term study, you'll find that pretty much the population of everything, every animal depends on the amount of rainfall the previous year. Lizards, snakes, mammals, birds. The rainfall creates a ton of vegetation growth. That causes a ton of seeds and insects, mm-hmm. and that determines the populations of the animals. Circle sure of life, yeah. Yeah, and so big El Nino wet years is when you get explosions of deer mice, and then they start going into houses, and then you get hantavirus outbreaks. Wow. And they got to the point, they started doing long-term trapping all over the Southwest after this happened. Uh, they pulled in those researchers from the University of New Mexico to be collaborators. They started trapping rats all throughout the Four Corners. And within a few years, they could basically predict when an outbreak would occur based on rainfall alone. Ah, uh, okay. Wow. So uh, are they still doing preventative measures to this day? Yeah, so they. I, I'm pretty sure you can still pretty easily get you know funding to study this in the Southwest. Um, now that we know understand the transmission cycle so well, it's it, you know this is not that big of a deal anymore because mm-hmm. everybody understands that deer mice in your house could be bad, and so you know people are super vigilant about it. There's signs up everywhere, and by the way, you know Sinnombre virus isn't just found in the Four Corners. The deer mouse is found all throughout North America, East Coast to West Coast, and so this virus is found throughout the range of the deer mouse. So you can get this in you know a cabin in the Appalachians if you don't watch out. But now that we understand its transmission cycle so well, it, it rarely occurs. It still does occur and it's still super bad and dangerous. The case fatality rate isn't fifty one percent. It's lower, but it's still a super dangerous disease. But we now know how to mitigate it and we've got, you know, um really good data on which kind of mice have it and when. And so, you know, this is a really cool case where we kind of, we got lucky. A lot of things came together. A lot of good science happened and a lot of luck happened. Yeah. It was super lucky that the University of New Mexico had already been studying the reservoir host for this virus for five years. Oh, if yeah. Had Tell me about it. We wouldn't have got that answer so quick. That oh. was luck. Wow, that's that's awesome. Well, we're heading into another break. We got another 10 minutes. And uh, I have a feeling we have even more information and science to share for you uh, or with you after the break. All right. We are back. And um, we just had been talking about the C. nombre virus, the virus with no name, and uh, how it really affected uh, this uh, population of Navajo. And it still affects us today. Uh, just in small numbers, we're kind of, we, you know, we do the research to contain it. But it was a really, really big deal. Uh, for its time. Uh, Sean, I have to ask you, It now this thing started out with the small Navajo family, you know, yeah. the, the, oh, wi- yeah. the wife yeah. and mother sadly passes away. The father going to the funeral passes away. What happened to the little baby? Yeah, so I guess it's, it's a happy ending here. Um, Maurice Baje, the, the infant, who was also infected with Sin Nombre and his parents died, he, he survived. He's alive. And um, you can find him on Facebook. I did. <laughs> I, <laughs> did you talk I to, to him? See, I, I actually sent him a friend request, and he hasn't got back to me yet. Oh. Um, but um, he, he seems like an interesting cat. Um, he is super into heavy metal music, <laughs> so he's, he's one of ours. That's cool, man. That's cool. Yeah. So he probably... Yeah, yeah, he he survived, and he's you know now he's like you know, thirty or something like that. Um, wow! And I'm sure it what a tragic story for him. It must be just awful to even think about. But um, you know, I guess there is a silver lining. Um, you know, things have changed. I, I, I shouldn't make it sound like you know the Sinombre virus is just no big deal at all because you know one of the big things that changed. After after the Sinombre virus, is the mammalogists in the Southwest no longer can't work with mice in the same way they used to. There's an awesome um, CDC presentation about this virus. A lot of the information I just gave you guys is from watching this really great 
um, CDC presentation that you can find on YouTube. And they've got a picture of what the University of New Mexico mammologists uh, used to work like before, <laughs> before Sinombo. And they're all sitting at this picnic table with like sandwiches and open beers. <laughs> and uh, and uh, one of them's got a sandwich in his mouth. And they've got all these dead mice that are sitting oh, there geez. on the table, gutted. And they're all sitting there. It's like a little um, skin party. And that's the way that um, mammologists used to work before 1993. Whoa. And now, now they work, they have to, they usually wear masks, they wear gloves. Um, and still have the beer, like, still have the open beer. Probably, probably still have the open beer. But, <laughs> you know, when I, when I work with small mammals with my mammalogy class, I don't take as big, uh, as good of precautions as I should. I don't wear a mask. And after researching this again, I, I think I will. But I did wear, I always wear, wore gloves. Because mice are kind of dirty and nasty, they're always covered in fleas, and it's just. Yeah. I much rather work with snakes and lizards. They're, they're not covered with the same gross stuff. True. Yeah, like you should watch out, and like, and that's just the least of your worries. You know, you could get the plague. You know, uh, pretty recently, a mammalogist um, died of bubonic plague from doing a necropsy on a prairie dog. Oh whoa! And so Neat. yeah, so it's you, you got to be careful with mammals, and that's one of the one of the things that resulted in this is I think people in the U.S. are a lot more aware and worried about little mice in their house than they were before 1993. Well, well wait before, a minute. I, I thought the vaccines we get when we're little kids like are supposed to keep us from getting all the, the plagues and all that other it, stuff. It, it keeps you from getting a lot of stuff, but there is no vaccine for hantavirus. How about the plague? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, mm. you, you can get treated for the plague, pretty easily because mm. it's a bacterial infection so there's antibiotics there's treatment for the plague and that's why people don't get it anymore but if, if you get like full-on bubonic plague which is like in the lungs um it, you can go you can progress to a disease that's so bad that they there's just no going back you can still die of it. but huh. if you get it i think if you catch it early it's treatable wow. but there are a ton of diseases obviously that um you know used to you know, one of the number one causes of death 150 years ago, 100 years measles. ago, was infectious disease. Oh, yeah. All kinds of infectious diseases. Measles, mumps, rubella, all that stuff. And that's yeah. the stuff that, you know, you do get the childhood vaccinations for, and we don't have to worry about as much anymore. Well, let's and finish so, Let's finish the show out with uh, how exactly... We can do a whole how, show. We, we've done a show on vaccines. How vaccine works? Va well, we've done yeah. a show on vaccines already. Yeah. But can we remind people real quick? Let's, let's do, do a quick about? refresher on yeah, how so, vaccines work. Yeah. The way your immune system works, um, you know, you, you get infected with something. Let's say you get infected with, um, with just a weak virus that just makes you sick. This mm -hmm. is an example. Um, like a flu. You, yeah. Uh, 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 flu is a good, a good example. You get, you get the flu. You get sick. Your body's going to develop antibodies against that flu, okay? And the antibodies are going to help bring it under control. It's going to. You're also going to develop a bunch of T cells that are very specific to that virus. T cells and B cells. B cells make antibodies. They're going to be very specific for that specific virus, even that virus strain. And you're going to, they're going to create these antibodies. And now the cool thing about your immune system is it sets aside some of those cells that last for a long time. They're called memory B cells and memory T cells. They live a long time. Most of your immune cells don't live a long time. You go through them, you burn through them like nothing. But after an infection, you set aside some of these memory T and B cells for later. So, And they're already made ahead of time. It might take as long as a week to develop these cells to make them super specific, which is why you, know, you can get sick and it can take a while to get over it. By the time you've gotten over this thing and brought it under control, those T and B cells are experts. They know mm -hmm. how to identify this thing, and they can proliferate clonally and just take it down. You, so you don't want to get rid of those cells because they can take it down if, it, if you get infected again. So let's say next year you get that same exact flu virus. Okay. You've already got the cells made. So they proliferate immediately and get it under control quickly. That's called a secondary response. The first response was your primary response. Might take two weeks. You still get you get sick. Secondary response. Sometimes those memory B cells immediately start pulling, uh, putting out antibodies again. They proliferate clonally. 
and it brings it under control so fast that you don't even get sick. You've got immunological protection. The secondary response gives you protection. You don't mm. even get sick the second time around. You won't even know you got it the second time because your, your uh, memory B cells are so good. So all a vaccine does is it stimulates that primary response without you actually getting infected by it. They huh. might use the dead part of a virus, like a little particle of the virus that your immune system can recognize. They might use a dead virus. Uh-huh. Might use what's called an attenuated virus. This is a virus that's gone through uh, several generations of cell cultures to where it's it's no longer infectious. And they'll give you this attenuated live virus that your immune system can play with, that can target. And so when you get this vaccine, and often it has other stuff in it, this is the stuff that scares a lot of people, these things called adjuvants, which are things added to the vaccine to really help stimulate the response. And none of that stuff is, that's the stuff that would cause your, um, you know, have a swelling yeah. um, to happen and real be painful. That's all right, that stuff. That's supposed to, supposed to really give your immune system like this huge shake. A boost to it. All that stuff is like simulating a real infection, so that your immune system is like, "Oh, it's getting I ready." Go find. Yeah, exactly. But the main thing that it's doing is just tricking your B cells into making antibodies, right. so that when you get real, if a if a if you get the COVID vaccine, and then two weeks later somebody coughs on you and you get real COVID, your immune system has already experienced COVID in a way. It's already been stimulated. It's already got those B and uh, T cells made. So you get that big, robust secondary response without actually getting um, the primary response, really, without ever getting Mm -hmm. infected the first time. So that when you get infected, you've already got immunological protection and you're safe. So it seems like there's a lot of science that goes into creating these vaccines. A question that I have, like just recently... How on earth are they able to produce this huge amount in such a short amount of time? Yeah, honestly, I mean, we, I we have, got about I four not, minutes left. So yeah, I don't, that could be a show a, too, but that's yeah, that's that's something I actually I didn't because you know I I kind of checked out of the COVID pandemic news like April of last year. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> it was it was psychologically damaging to me to, yeah, to follow you. the news. And so I didn't actually, I don't know. I know there's a lot of really cool new techniques that they use to develop this so fast. And I don't know how they're mass producing it. I have no idea. Um, So I'm I'm going to plead ignorance on that. I will say that, and we've mentioned this before in other shows, that part of the reason, and this shouldn't be forgotten, part of the reason why this was so easy to do um, uh, is that we had tons and tons of patients to do experiments on. Right, which is kind of kind of a bad thing. Yeah, but that that is you know the fact that the U.S. had so much infection meant that if you wanted to do a study on twenty thousand people who were infected, you had those people around. There were plenty of uh, guinea pigs, and they were all terrified of having that disease, so they were wanting to be part of some sort of vaccine trial. Mm. And so that's part part that's it's a weird kind of counterintuitive or paradoxical kind of thing that you wouldn't think that. Uh, it would be easy to make a vaccine during a pandemic, but it turns out if you've got a ton of infection, that means you've got plenty of experiments to do and plenty of big sample sizes. So that's the other thing that, like, I know there's still a lot of hesitation. A lot of people are like, "Well, I want to be, I want to wait to see if this vaccine really works and is not dangerous before I take it." It's like, dude, they've already they've had thirty thousand people take this vaccine just in the trials. So yeah. the, that that. You know, the hesitation over being the, you know, 450,000th person who takes the vaccine is pretty misguided because Mm. this isn't like you've had vaccines that relied on way fewer people. Mm. You've already had those vaccines that were the sample sizes were way lower, like almost every vaccine you've ever had had way lower people involved in the trials than this one. So this one is... You know, I'm not going to sit here and and bind myself legally into telling you this is the safest vaccine ever. And uh, but you know, that's that's what went into this. It, there's plenty of people who've already had it and are walking around, so I wouldn't worry about being. You know, what you're going to end up being is being the last person vaccinated if you wait. Right. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I also worry a little bit about the uh, the amount of time that it takes to, like, the long-term effects, but that that's a whole other story. Anyway, uh, we're yeah, going to wrap yeah. it up there. You I'd, know? I'd be, yeah, I want to address that real quick. Sure. I'd be way more worried about the long-term effects of COVID-19 yeah. than of the long-term effects of the vaccine. Oh, okay, yeah. COVID-19 is a live-ass virus, right, that, that could potentially lie latent in your blood or hiding somewhere. We don't know all that. Yeah. That scares the crap out of me. And that's why I don't like people are like, oh, well, if I get it, I'm young. I'll be OK. I'm like, dude, you know, when when HIV happened, it was seven years before anybody died. Right. It, it lied latent, just tearing up your T helper cells uh, for for almost a decade before it actually caused the disease. And I don't want to panic people, but you know, sometimes we don't understand. And this thing is brand new. So that's that scares me. The long term implications of getting a live virus and getting infected that we don't know. And it scares me. The, the vaccine, I can't imagine, would have uh, long term consequences. If you, you maybe a, a rapid you know, kind of thing could happen and could have some side effects. But like 10 years from now, that vaccine is going to work its way through your system. Nothing's going to happen. But the virus itself. That's a different bowl of wax. Wow. Well, thanks, yeah. man. It, it's very entertaining uh, show today. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to more shows uh, with uh, you and all the other nights. But man, our first yeah. our first science night in the science morning. Night. So it was ba- it was bound to happen. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And I am. I was originally looking at trying to maybe get one of the University of New Mexico mammal people on the show as a guest. And I, we, did, I, we decided to just go ahead and do this show the way it was today. But if I can get Robert Parmenter, uh, I'm going to try to get him. He, he was one of the rat catchers from the University oh. of Mexico. It'd be cool to, cool to hear from him from the, um, oh, you know, yeah. That'd be the great. horse's mouth. Yeah. Then so people, I'll try to get him as a guest. Then people can listen to this show and then go right into that one. So how about yeah. that? <laughs> All right. Well, that's another episode of Science Night in the Morning there. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.